So um, <clears throat> as you may or may not have heard, my name is Greg Scharf, and uh, I actually live here in Flagstaff. I have a home here, which I occasionally get to come and be in and near, but I'm away teaching a lot. Um, I teach with Brian Lesage um, on longer retreats, so I see him, actually see him when we're not here more than I ever see him in town. And usually when I figure if I'm sitting here, he's probably away somewhere. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I'll be seeing him in March. Um, I think it's in March. I have a hard time keeping everything straight, but I'm uh, be heading for a place called Spirit Rock Meditation Center to uh, help be part of the teaching team for a two-month retreat. And I'm quite sure I remember Brian's name being on the March list. So I'll see him then. Um, what else to say? Uh, I've been uh, practicing meditation formally for about 26 years now um, in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, uh, Vipassana Insight Meditation. I have uh, began my practice uh, in the United States and I've done a lot of uh, practice, a long retreat practice at a place called the Insight Meditation Society, uh, which is in Massachusetts, Barrie, Massachusetts. Um, but I've also traveled and practiced a lot in Asia, especially in Burma, India, and Thailand, and was ordained for a, a period of time as a, a monk in Burma. So uh, I have a, a real love of that part of the world and a real strong connection there. Um, that's probably enough about me. Um, I don't get to come here very often. It seems like the times when I've been contacted to see if I was available uh, in the last year or more, I've been out of town or about to leave. And uh, so it's nice to be back, and it's so great to see. I think there's about twice as many people here as the last time I was here. And uh, if it continues to uh, grow in this way, more space might be required, I guess. But it's really nice to um, join you all uh, when, I, when I am here to do that. And uh, great to see that there's this interest in this practice. So I thought I'd begin tonight. Um, is there? There's no. No one. It's my, my turn now. <laughs> no one again. My turn. <laughs> so I thought I'd begin tonight, and I, by playing a part of a recording of some chanting, I thought it would be an interesting and maybe different way to begin. And um, it just occurred to me that I wonder if Brian has possibly played some of this chant for you because I did play some of it at um, for part of one of my talks this fall when I was teaching with Brian and he was quite taken with uh, with the chanting and, and we had one night a week there uh, where we were playing a recording and he played uh, this chant for 45 minutes uh, or so for the people. So it may be familiar to some of you. And we've all just said our names, so since you've come in, you could say your I'm Michelle. Hi, Michelle. It's fine. It's no problem at all. So anyway, um, I know that chanting is not everybody's thing, and um, I'll keep it pretty short. But sometimes I think it's there's something I think kind of powerful and sometimes moving um, about hearing these teachings in the in the ancient language of Pali. It's a word. It's spelled P-A-L-I. It's a, a language that is very closely related to Sanskrit and. It's the language in which the earliest teachings of the historical Buddha were preserved. Um, I know some of you are familiar with some words. The word karma is Sanskrit. In Pali, it's kamma. 
So very close there. And that language of Pali exists only as a vehicle for for bringing these teachings forward over the centuries. These were uh, memorized orally and then, um, you know, through chanting. So the chants tend to be very repetitious. And then, uh, so it wasn't until about three or 400 years after the death of the Buddha that anything was written down. So things were preserved in this uh, oral format. And so this, what I want to play tonight is um, the first bit of... um, of a discourse, a sutta, called uh, the Satipatthana Sutta. And I'm sure some of you, maybe many of you are familiar with this teaching. It is the, um, the teaching that forms the, the core uh, instructions for insight, uh, vipassana meditation, mindfulness meditation. So um, it's one of the most uh, beloved and uh, famous teachings of the Buddha and really contains... Uh, the most clear and specific meditation instructions of anything that he ever offered. So um, you can just um, sit quietly, close your eyes if you'd like to, and uh, listen. And uh, I'll, I'll just fade it out after a few minutes. It might take me just a minute to get the volume happening. <laughs> Namo tas bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tas bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Evang me sutang ekang samayang bhagava kuru suviherati kamas dhammang nam kuru nang nigamo Tatrako bhagava bhikkhu amante si bhikkhavoti badante ti te bhikkhu bhagavato pachasosum bhagava etadavocha Ekayano ayang bhikkave maggo sattanang visuddhya soka paridvanang samatikkamaya dukkhadomanasanang athagamaya nyayasa abhigamaya Nibbanas satchikiriyaya yadidang Chattaro satipatthana Katame chattaro ida bhikkave bhikkhu Kaye kayanupasi viharati Atapi sampajano satima 
विनय लोके अभिजादो मनसं वेदनासु वेदनानुपस्सी विहरति आतापि संपजानु सतिमा विनय लोके अभिजादो मनसं चित्ते चित्तानुपस्सी विहरति आतापि संपजानु सतिमा विनय लोके अभिजादो मनसं धम्मे सुधम्मानुपस्सी विहरति आतापि संपजानु सतिमा विनय लोके अभिजादो मनसं So that chanting began with the words after the homage, which we probably recognize the Namo Tassa, Bhagavato Arahato, Sama Sambuddhasa, homage to the Blessed One, the Fully Enlightened One. Repeated three times. And then the first words were Ewang Me Sutang, which literally means, Thus I have heard, and um, points to the fact that these teachings were. Um, heard and remembered. And almost all of them are said to have been uh, heard and remembered by the Buddha's attendant, Ananda, who's said to have had a um, almost like a photographic kind of memory. And he, he made a deal with the Buddha when he Buddha became the Buddha's attendant, close friend and attendant. He was his cousin. Uh, that if he ever um, wasn't present when a discourse was given that someone would repeat it to him so that he could have have that in his memory. And so he was the source of uh, these teachings. So they begin with these words, thus have I heard. And then in that first uh, uh, paragraph, the Buddha said, uh, the, the speaker, the one who was heard said, thus I've heard. At one time, the Blessed One, the Buddha, was residing in the Kuru country in a town of the Kuru people called Kamasadamma. And there he gave this discourse on the um, Satipatthanas, the four Satipatthanas. And in that very first paragraph, the Buddha makes this very profound statement. He said, this is the direct path for um, the liberation of beings, for the, the um, release of suffering, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair, uh, for the realization of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana. And these are words that he used, basically saying, this, this, this what I'm telling you now is, is a practice that will lead you to uh, a deep uh, kind of uh, understanding, has the potential to lead you to an understanding that uh, can free the heart and mind in, in some way that, uh, that he experienced and was then trying to offer this forth uh, for others. 
so it's a, this makes it starts out with this very powerful experience, uh, uh, um, <clears throat> this powerful um, exclamation, you could say, these words, this is a path that leads to freedom, to understanding, to uh, freedom from suffering, you could say. And this word, this sutta is called the Satipatthana Sutta. The word sati is the Pali word for mindfulness. Uh, and Satipatthana is a combination of that word plus a second word, uh, upatana, which means establishment. And so uh, this discourse is on what are called the establishments of mindfulness. And there are four of them. So it breaks down the entirety of our experience, anything that we could experience in the body and mind is included in this teaching. So it's very, uh, you could say, it's giving us four ways or four lenses to look at our experience. But the, the beauty and power of this is that it does include everything. So there's nothing left out. There's no aspect of our experience, pleasant, unpleasant, what we like, what we don't like, coarse or fine, um, subtle or gross. It's all in there. It's all included in as a uh, as a the the terrain of our exploration, you could say, or the venue, uh, the the way we uh, we look at at life. We look at all of it. So this is really, I think, um, both a powerful and beautiful thing. But really speaks to the strength of this teaching is that we do uh, engage with and address and become, um, you could say, really radically intimate with every aspect of our experience. No part is left out. And if you think about it, if something were left out, then somehow it would always be incomplete. There would be something we're not addressing. And so from this perspective, it points to something really um, profound and, and a critical understanding for us when we come to meditation practice, if we're going to take it to any depth. And that is the fact that we're not um, somehow escaping from life or from some part of life. We're not learning some mechanism or tool to control our experience so that we only experience what we like or what we find pleasing or pleasant or acceptable. Because we can't do that. We might be able to pull it off for a little while, once in a while, right? We can, we can have it be the way we want it Sometimes for a little while, but as a strategy for happiness, it's, it's fraught with peril because we don't have that ability. We can't say, if we could, any one of us could say, let me only have pleasant sensations in my body and really groovy mind states that I like. You know, if we could do that, yes, go home. You don't need to come here. And you can, if you can figure out how to Give that to somebody else. Boy, you have a gold mine there if you want to turn it for profit. Some method, but, but that's, that was never on offer. <laughs> Buddha didn't say, I'm going to teach you how to have only pleasant experiences. He didn't only have pleasant experiences. He had all kinds of problems. He had a chronic backache. He had people trying to give him a bad name and um, kill him with wild, crazy elephants and all kinds of stuff went down. He didn't, you know, he woke up I'm sure he had days when he had to hang out with people he would have preferred to avoid, if nothing else, or whatever. You know, I mean, some of the discourses he, you know, he didn't pull any punches. He said, "Stupid person, you, you're really looking at this in a dumb way." And so, you know, he he had his he had a life, you know, and he had to walk every day. He had to walk through wherever he was, 
and hope that someone would put something into his bowl for him to eat. Because in that tradition, that's how the, the, those bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, those uh, people who ordained, still to this day, they're alms mendicants. Right? They live on alms food that is offered. They can't keep food past noon for the ones who, who take that uh, life in robes. Right? So they have a very simple, austere existence. So, you know, some days I've lived that life. Some days you only get bad rice. Okay, I can be content with that. He probably would have rather maybe not had just bad rice, but, you know, that was the life. So... Um, so in this teaching, in the Satipatthana, and the reason I wanted to introduce it through the chanting and talk about it tonight is because this, um, when we think of the, the sati plus upatana, meaning establishments of mindfulness, and this sense that it includes our entire experience, the beauty of that is that um, it points to this establishing a mindful relationship, an aware relationship to our life, to whatever's going on in our life. As, and as I was saying, not just on the parts that we like, <laughs> not just the pleasant parts. It's all of it. So the emphasis is not on the experience in any particular moment so much as it is on this uh, attitude or quality or a sense of being mindful and aware in any moment. And it also points to the fact that any and all aspects of our experience are, are really equally valid Anything that we can be mindful of can serve as a vehicle for understanding. This is great. This is really great news. We don't have to have it be a particular way. Doubt, a painful knee, a wild, weird mind, those can all serve as vehicles for understanding. So this is great news because as many of you have probably noticed if you've done any meditation at all, you don't get to pick what arises in your experience very often. You know, maybe you can incline the mind towards uh, re- resting with the experience of the breath perhaps arising and passing away. And for a while, the mind settles and is quiet there. But then all of a sudden, you know, everything's cool and groovy. And then the theme song to Mr. Ed, <laughs> a horse is a horse, of course, of course, shows up in your mind. Now, this dates me. Maybe some of you younger folks don't know this stupid show from the 1960s about a talking horse. But, you know, you didn't decide to have, or whatever, your version of Mr. Ed theme song showing up. Or worries about whatever, or memories from the past. So this ability to show up for our life no matter what's happening is, is um, this powerful, it's a complete game changer in our lives in the world. And just take a moment now and feel, bring your attention just to the sound of my voice or the feeling of your body sitting. Know that you're sitting. Sounds arising in the room. Just for a second. Nothing special, just anything you might be aware of right now. We all have that possibility. You feel that right now. You just ask the question right now, am I aware or is there awareness? What's the answer? If you're present enough to ask that question, you get to say yes. 
You can't ask the question, is there awareness, am I aware, and say no. You might not have been just before you asked the question, and you might not be in the next moment, but in that moment, you're there, that presence. It's, it's um, not a big deal in a certain way, and yet it changes everything. It, is the, it opens the door to everything becomes possible through that. And the Buddha spoke about this in, in the, these, this famous line, or a few lines, this famous verse from uh, a collection of teachings, uh, short verses called the Dhammapada. He said, mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful do not die. The heedless are as if dead already. That's strong. What does that mean? As if dead already. I think what it points to is that with mindful awareness, we can, we have the chance to see what's going on and we're not just living out our conditioning. But without mindfulness, we're mostly going to be just living out our conditioning. And it's just as this endless turning of a wheel. It's like running on a hamster wheel. It's not going anywhere. And all the things that we get up to in our search for happiness, you know, because that's all the nonsense in the world. And there's some major nonsense going down these days, folks, isn't it? (laughs) All kinds of stuff. If you look at that, underneath all of the antics that we get up to as a species some of which are not very beautiful and some of which are downright wacko, they're all, they're all based on this movement towards trying to find a way to be happy or to be at ease or to be at peace, isn't it? You know, even the people who get up to the worst stuff, they're trying to be happy. They just have no idea. You know, the amount of confusion of what actually leads to happiness, you know, what's the best thing we're offered? Go shopping, maybe shopping, try that. Or, or, I don't know, eat this or get that thing. You know, and all the advertising is like some version of shopping or something like that. You know, that's the pinnacle is if you get a lot of cool stuff. And there's nothing wrong with having nice stuff. It's not about that, but it doesn't, it doesn't address the core issue, right? Nice stuffness, and it doesn't last very long. So then you have to get a new thing whatever it might be, if that's your strategy. It's an endless search. So there's a certain kind of riskiness or, or instability, insecurity in, in approaching life from this idea of, of turning to uh, transient experiences as our, um, let's say, as our strategy for finding happiness, because that's what we're doing there, right? We're turning to something unreliable like a pleasant feeling in the moment. I mean, don't, we can look, look, just check this out over the next week. (laughs) Check it out when we sit in meditation here in a little while, quietly. And, and we can see the movement towards, towards having, towards a pleasant feeling and the movement away from an unpleasant feeling and all the different ways that we, that we try to get pleasant ones and try to keep unpleasant ones away. And there's nothing, it's not like that's weird. That's normal, right? Pleasant feels good, unpleasant doesn't feel good. That's not weird. And all beings, even single-cell amoebas, 
will retreat from unpleasant and go towards pleasant. So there's nothing wrong with that. Pleasant, unpleasant isn't an issue. What's the issue is that um, we don't see that, that it's, a, it's a limited strategy for finding happiness because they don't last. Nothing wrong with them, but they just don't last. So there's, that, there's this um, insecurity, this fragility, vulnerability that underlies um, life in, a, in, in this regard. And so if we're turning to something that is, has that unreliability, it's a setup for a, a kind of a tension or a stress in our life that can pervade uh, our own life and, and not really even be seen. Buddha spoke about this in this um, one teaching where he uses, um, he often used images to try to uh, sort of flesh out points he was trying to make. And I love this one. I'm going to read a little bit from one of the, one of the teachings. Um, this image that's used in many places of a raft that's being used to cross a flooded area, an expanse of water. And so uh, I'll just read uh, read a little bit from this teaching. Suppose someone were traveling along a path and saw a great expanse of water with the near shore dubious and risky, the one they're walking along, and the further shore secure and free from risk, but with neither a ferry boat, a ferry boat or a bridge or any other way to get across. The thought might occur to them, here is this great expanse of water with the near shore dubious and risky, and the further shore secure and free from risk, but with neither a ferry boat nor a bridge nor any way to cross. What if I were to gather grass, twigs, branches, leaves, and other materials, and bind them together and make a raft, and then were to cross over to safety to the other shore, in dependence upon the raft, and making an effort with my hands and feet? And then having gathered together grass, twigs, branches, leaves, and so forth, and having bound them together to construct a raft, they would then cross over to safety to the other shore, in dependence on the raft and by making an effort with their hands and feet. So I, I like a lot of things about this image of constructing a raft. So you could say the, the near shore, the dubious, risky shore, you could say is, is when we're oriented towards um, uh, you could say unreliable things, changing conditions as our strategy for finding uh, real happiness. And the further shore is the security of uh, the teachings that the Buddha was pointing towards, this understanding that leads us to um, see that that's not the way and that there's another way. That there's another way to find uh, a real lasting true kind of happiness. And so there's some good things about the image. The flood often um, is crossing this flooded area. You could say, um, for many of us, I think, at some time in our life, part of what might draw us to meditation or to something we would call a spiritual path is this sense of being swept along by um, life's changes and things that are not under our control. And um, it can be this sense of being swept away by... Um, you know, everything's going great and then we get sick or someone we love gets sick or we lose our job or whatever, all the things that can come that are unpredictable in life. So that the insecurity of that, and the feeling of, of trying to navigate or negotiate that. 
And so crossing to the other side could be seen as a way of, of understanding, of dealing with that, uh, to find a place of security, of, of uh, real ease, you could say, or peace. Now, it's, it's not that we, we have to not hold the image too literally because it's not that we're going somewhere other than right here. <laughs> and we're not getting something we don't have. Let's uh, read a few lines from um, T.S. Eliot here. He said, uh, in Little Gidding, in the Four Quartets, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. So that's more the sense of it, this, these poetic words, but this sense of... of um, that nothing changes, we're not going somewhere else, but our understanding is transformed. So nothing changes and everything is transformed by the power of insight and understanding of wisdom. A deep seeing, you could say, into the truth of things below surface appearances. And so we use the raft to cross the flood of confusion to clarity and understanding. And the other th- cool thing I like about this um, image of the raft is that, um, you know, what's it made of? Grass and twigs and leaves and stuff that is found there on the shore, <laughs> right? Things that are nearby, you know, it's, it's... So you could, relating that to our practice, what do we make our raft of in our practice? It's, it's what's arising in the moment, right? <laughs> it's this pain in my knee and this happy mood and this doubt and this uh, unpleasant sensation and this uh, beautiful memory and this joyful state and this um, really difficult state of grief and anything else, everything else. It's made out of that stuff. That's great, because that stuff's always there, right? It's just the stuff of life. It's the stuffness of life. It's all that kind of stuff. Pleasant, unpleasant, coarse, refined. Anything is suitable for constructing the raft. And it's a raft. It's not a real nice speedboat or a luxury <laughs> liner that's way up high. You're down in a raft. When I was a kid, I grew up in Phoenix. And the house I grew up in was right next to one of those big irrigation canals. Right next to it. So we played up there a lot. And we used to make these rafts. I don't think you can get away with it now. But we used to make rafts out of grass, twigs, leaves, <laughs> stuff we found, junk behind people's houses. There was a bamboo patch. We, we made some of the decking out of bamboo. We got these old milk jugs that had the lids on them and used those to try to hold it up. And... You know, you got wet. <laughs> you didn't. You were floating, kind of. <laughs> it reminds me of that. You know, that's the stuff we used. This junk that nobody else wanted. And we made the raft, and we floated around. We didn't maybe cross to the shore in the way the Buddha says, but we would float down the the, the canal. And so, you know, we we make it out of the stuff that's right there. We're in the water. We propel it with our own hands and feet. So it's our own efforts. Someone doesn't hand it to us, too bad. And it might, maybe we go through a rapid and it gets broken up. And we have to grab this stuff back and put it back together, right? 
We get, to- we get tossed around. Don't we get tossed around in our own minds sometimes? Maybe none of you do. I do. <laughs> and then I put my raft back together by coming back to, you know, we come back to something. Oh, okay. I'm here. I'm sitting. And I'll build my raft again. We reestablish mindfulness through these connections to our experience, whatever it might be. We can, because we can be aware of anything. We can be mindful of anything, isn't it? There's nothing in our experience that we can't be mindful of. There's some things we prefer. <laughs> That's definitely there. But we can bring mindfulness to anything. That is cool. That is great. So we can, we can, it doesn't matter if the raft gets broken up, we can put it back together in any moment. We can come back to presence, reconstruct it. And there's always something floating by. There's always something there. There's never not anything available to bring awareness to. So we make a new raft. And, and so, so this process then gives us this, um, this tool, the tool of mindful awareness, allows us to, to engage with our life in a really different way than um, maybe we have done most of our life. Maybe a really different way than most people are. This ability to actually see our own inner world and processes, to see what's going on there, to not necessarily believe everything our mind churns out for us. We have the possibility to see what's going on, to actually see our conditioned responses, to make wise choices, to see what leads to freedom and what doesn't, to see what leads towards the end of suffering, what leads towards more suffering in our lives in the world. It gives us a chance to um, learn a whole new way of relating to experience. And it opens the door to a deeper seeing where we can drop below the level of uh, concepts and our ideas about things to this very direct uh, connection to life, what I called earlier and I think of very often as a kind of radical intimacy with, with what we could say is um, universal to all experience, right? Like, okay, what's, what's universal to this pain in my left buttock and this a beautiful exalted mind state that I might in some moment of grace experience what's universal there they sound kind of far apart right but but that's what we're we're getting we can this practice opens the door to seeing what's universal there, what's common to both of those experiences is that they're both subject to change. Neither one is going to last forever. They're, because they're subject to change, I can't ask, say, the beautiful exalted mind state to be the thing that makes my life all okay and is my source of happiness because it's unfortunately not going to last. So I can't ask any one experience to be the thing that does it. And it's happening, it's all conditioned, right? There are conditions that lead to that pain 
in that part of my body. There are conditions that to lead to that uh, beautiful mind state. They're not under my direct control. I can't decide to not have the one and to only have the other. <laughs> right? So they're, they're coreless, or you could say they're, um, they're conditioned. There's not someone in charge of it. <laughs> right? It's this flow of causation. So this is, you know, on and on. I mean, this is, we could go on for the rest of our lives because this is the, the core of what we're uh, touching into, this possibility. But that's, that's what's so great about this practice is that those, the understandings that we get through connecting deeply with those three common characteristics of change, of unreliability or unsatisfactoriness and of um, uncontrollability or corelessness. It's, it's seeing deeply into those and coming into harmony with that rather than fighting against those things. That's what leads us to the greatest possible peace. And that's really the, the um, thrust of everything the Buddha taught was uh, seeing more and more deeply into that and through that exploration releasing the causes of stress and struggle and suffering in our lives. So, a lot of words. Let's uh, let them drift away. And uh, let's just have a minute of quiet and then I know there's a rhythm to the evening that others will... Um, well, part of it is some meditation, but let's have a, a moment of quiet and then we'll uh, just let my words die and then we'll um, have a stretch break just for a minute. I'll ring the bell in just a second. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.